Hello and welcome to another episode of Nearly Experts, the podcast which brings you closer to the lives and work of PhD students from around the world. As usual, I'm your host, James, and today we're joined by Anahit Berus. Anahit was born in London, where she grew up. She went to St. John's College in Oxford, where she studied French and German. After graduating from Oxford, she moved up to St. Andrews to do her MLit in Comparative Literature and is now in her third year of her PhD at the University of Edinburgh, where we are now. Welcome, Anahit. Hi. Now, you've been around the place a little bit in terms of subjects. What are you doing now? So I'm currently doing a PhD in English literature, um, specifically looking at Tolkien and his cartography and looking at the way that it talks about issues of geography and culture and history. So what's your overall question? Do you have a, a question or a title at the moment? I think my title has Mapping Middle Earth in it because it's alliterative and that's as far as I've got. So my overall question is just thinking about how the maps are important in an intradiegetic framework. So thinking about the way that the characters look at maps and read maps and make maps. And so considering the maps outside of the paratextual framework that they've been considered so far, that's not a very kind of well-formulated question, but that's the overall point of it. Okay, so you're looking at the use of maps in the context of the text itself? Yes, exactly. So um, a lot of the maps, The Hobbit is a prime example, where the map that's provided on the inside front cover, I think, is actually used by the characters. So it's referred to, and so it's Thor's map, which is the one they used to find Lonely Mountain. And there's loads of references to the characters reading it and interpreting the runes and things like that. And that's one of the few examples where maps are actively, a specific map is actively looked at. But throughout the books, there are instances of characters talking about maps in archives and going to consult maps and talking about the world as if it is a map. I just thought that was really interesting and no one had really looked at that before. Okay, and I mean, you say that people have looked at yes. maps in Tolkien before. Yeah. What, what have other people said about these maps? So people tend to look at it from kind of an illustration perspective. So Wayne Hammond and Christine Skull have edited three separate books on Tolkien's illustrations, and that's where most of the map work has been done. So they've looked at the different drafts that he did, because the interesting thing about the post-Hobbit maps is actually Tolkien didn't draw the final versions his son Christopher did, but he drew very detailed drafts of them that his son then worked on with Tolkien together. They are still kind of a creative product of his, but they're also done by his son. And so Hammond and Skull have looked at the illustration process and the draft process and how he kind of, what things he was prioritizing so in terms of scale or like, you know, yeah, accuracy and all that sort of thing. So people have looked at them like that and people have also looked at them um, to a certain extent from a world building perspective. So obviously that's a really big thing with Tolkien is thinking about all the extra stuff that comes with the books that helps to create what we call like his secondary world. So they look at it from that perspective and how it helps the reader, how it helps reinforces um, the reader's belief in the secondary world by providing all of this stuff that you know they can trace exactly where Middle-earth is and how it maps out and even places that aren't talked about in the books are there. So it kind of gives this idea that there's a world beyond that narrative. So yeah, it's been looked at from that perspective, but not so much from like an in-world, um, outside of the external readers' experience of the maps. So, yeah. Okay, so you're not interested, for instance, in kind of whether this world could exist? Not exactly. It's an interesting thing because the way that Tolkien talks about Middle-earth is that... So he very famously wanted to create a mythology for England. That's what he says in one of his letters, or several of his letters. Because he always felt very jealous of places like Scandinavia that had this very kind of concrete mythology behind them. And he felt that England didn't really have that. 
And so his idea was to create a background mythology for England. So in the same way that, you know, you have the Norse gods, suddenly you would have the elves. And so the idea was that Middle-earth is our world. So certain of his earlier drafts even mapped certain cities very exactly to cities right now, so such as Warwick and Oxford. And so the idea was that Middle-earth was meant to really exist. It was meant to be our world, but just in a very, very prehistoric time. But that is a very interesting thing when you then think about the maps, because if these are maps of a place that really existed, then you can start thinking about questions of, well, what happens when the maps no longer refer to a place that exists? So the way that the world changes and the way that's in tension with kind of the maps as a permanent material object. And in terms of the, I mean, Tolkien has quite an interesting publication history. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned his son Christopher already. Yes. Which, which works do you use? Are you involved with looking at all of the yep. current extant works of, of Tolkien? including his like private correspondences? Yep, I look at the whole shebang. So obviously The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were published in his time. And then I also look at The History of Middle-earth, which was edited by his son, Christopher Tolkien. I look at that more than I do at The Silmarillion, because The Silmarillion is a little bit more of an artificial work. His son, Christopher, worked on it a little bit more to make it into a cohesive narrative. Whereas The History of Middle-earth is all of the drafts and the reiterations of what he was saying. and there far more Tolkien's own words than Christopher's, and then there's commentary by Christopher. So yeah, I look at that, and they also feature a lot of very interesting maps that haven't really been talked about because they're not the maps that we as readers interact with that much. And then, yeah, his correspondence, there is an edited volume of his letters, which is really useful, and that has all the important ones in it. I've not really kind of looked at any that would be outside of that. The University of Edinburgh actually has a letter that um, isn't in that edited volume that I've seen. And it's very adorable. It's all about, it was written a few months before he died. And it's all about him coming to Edinburgh. I think he was being awarded an honorary degree. And then he's talking about how beautiful it was and how he really liked the whiskey. And it's like, it's very cute, um, but it's not very important for Matt, so. So it's primarily focusing on his middle earth writings. I don't really look at things like Leaf by Neville or these smaller stories that much, at least not yet. Okay, okay. and. What kind of developments have you have you seen over the course of Zooks? Do you see developments? What kind of trends do you look at? You've spoken a little bit about the specific use of the map in The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it's been a long time since I've read uh, either of um, The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings series. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see, I mean, is there a corresponding map in The Lord of the Rings? Yeah, so there are several maps in Lord of the Rings. There's the Middle-earth map, which is the famous one that kind of everyone knows, and it was in the films. Um, then in Fellowship of the Ring, there is a map called A Part of the Shire, which is just a map of the Shire, and it goes as far as like the borders of the Old Forest, and it focuses on, you know, Hobbiton. And then in um, Return of the King, there is a map called, um, what's called the Map of Rohan, Gondon Mordor, and it pretty much is just that. So that one's, again, a slightly more specific map to do with the action that's taking place in the book. Oh yeah, and then The Hobbit also has another map called the Map of the Wilderland, which is a slightly more small-scale one of, like, Mirkwood and, like, Towards the Lonely Mountain. Um, in terms of trends, so, yeah, The Hobbit is the only book which has a map which is specifically talked about in the text itself, whereas the other ones just talk about maps more generally, but they never refer to, kind of, you know, the Middle-earth map, which is then provided, you know, in the paratext. So you can't match it up that well. But yeah, there are trends, stylistic trends, I think. The maps that he draws for um, The Hobbit are far more medieval in a, in a way. They're a lot more hand-drawn, um, a lot more simplistic, 
Whereas when you move towards um, the Lord of the Rings maps, there's a lot more specificity in them. So um, the way that he worked on them was that he wanted them to be accurate. So he would move certain cities a centimetre to the right if he thought that his characters wouldn't take that long to walk there or whatever. The scale and accuracy of those maps becomes more paramount. And there are like really interesting questions as to why he did that. It was probably because Lord of the Rings is a more complex story and the way that the map is used for the external reader is that they want to be able to kind of trace the characters' journeys and get a good sense of what's happening. And so you need a certain level of accuracy for that. I think in that way, the, the maps do change stylistically, they do evolve. Um, the map of Rohan, Gondor and Mordor has contour lines, which is very interesting. Um, so it's not that kind of very like pseudo-medieval aesthetic that we've come to expect from Tolkien's maps. It looks like essentially a modern map, like a World War One map, because Tolkien himself was, he worked with maps in World War One, so that was his primary job. So it's kind of very influenced by that period of his life. Yeah, but so the Lord of the Rings has maps, but they are very different and they have a very different use, so they're not referred to explicitly in the text. In the history of Middle-earth, there are maps, but there are no instances specifically of map reading. Or they're not referred to in the text, but the maps are provided. So there it's a little bit more of a reach to figure out exactly how they're talked about. But the thing is, even in those books, even when maps aren't talked about, places talked about and space and how the characters interact with their environment. And if the maps are provided, and very often in the history of Middle-earth, the texts are positioned as if they've been written by an elf or they've been written by a scribe and they're being passed down through, through the centuries. And so there's this kind of logic that, well, if the texts were meant to be written, if that's kind of the conceit that Tolkien's working with, then probably the, that stretches to the maps as well. And so you think, well, if these maps are being produced and then the characters are interacting with their environments and interpreting their environments, then there's still an interesting link to be made between the two. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's quite a key point, isn't it? The, the perspective one, because the, the Hobbit very much is the tale of Bilbo. Yes. Uh, and his journey outside of his known world. Yes, exactly. Um, so the map is actually quite a key touch point for both you as a as a reader yeah. uh, and for Bilbo and the and his um, troop of dwarves yeah. uh, and where they're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's Keith Sullivan once talked about The Hobbit as a like as a coming of age narrative essentially for Bilbo. So it's this kind of story of emotional and not exactly intellectual, but kind of knowledge development in a way. And I think that can definitely be traced through, like you say, with the map, that he, at first, he's really, really scared of, you know, the outdoors <laughs> and anything beyond the borders of the Shire. But there's a really interesting bit, actually, at the beginning of The Hobbit, where it talks about how Bilbo loves maps. So he has a map of the country round that's tacked onto his wall, and it has all of his favourite walks marked in red, and he really loves it. And when Gandalf first brings out Thor's map and spreads it on the table and all the dwarves gather around it, Bilbo, up until now, had been like, I want nothing to do with this nonsense. And then he sees the map and he becomes really interested in it. And it's kind of said Bilbo loved maps and he was really kind of drawn towards it. And so definitely there is this idea of the map being a catalyst for this kind of emotional development that he goes through. And yeah, you do see it throughout because it is a story effectively about a journey and about a quest. And then, yeah, the maps that he then starts to interact with are maps not of places that he knows and is very familiar with, but maps that kind of open up new new landscapes and new perspectives. Um, and Lord of the Rings is similar in that way. It's a quest narrative, and so that's why I think the maps are also important. Whereas the Silmarillion stories are about people discovering their country and discovering land around them. So it's a lot less... The maps that are provided, you get the sense that it's people kind of trying to figure out how to represent, um, as opposed to having represented and then trying to negotiate the landscape with the maps that they have. 
that make sense? Yeah, no, of course it does. As you say, The Hobbit is about the broadening of Bilbo's um, horizon, so working with with the map in that sense uh, is really interesting. And The Silmarillion, in the same way, is about the discovery of new places by people. Uh, and is very much set in a pseudo-mythical time yes, as well. Exactly. Whereas the Lord of the Rings, is, as you point out, is kind of set in not a static world, but a known world. It's very much the world of elves and men at that point. Yeah. So it, would, it makes perfect sense for these places to be more yeah. kind of strictly set out. Exactly. Because it's, it is, a, as you say, a quest, but not a quest of discovery. It's yeah. kind of um, very much a directed journey with an objective yeah. um, at the end of, I guess, both trails of the story. Yeah, exactly. And I think what happens with Lord of the Rings especially is that then you do have, and The Hobbit to a certain extent, is you then do have a tension because this is a known world. It's a world that these characters and, you know, their species have lived in for a very long time. But there, there are still parts of the world that are unknown and they are, in a way, unmapped. And so there's a very interesting thing with, for example, Thor's map has Mirkwood, which is a scary place where all the spiders are and, you know, all, all the terrible things happen. Um, that is just off the edge of the map, so you just see like the tips of trees and there's an arrow pointing downwards and it's like, this is Mirkwood, there are spiders here, and it's like very ominous. And so it's very kind of, you know, that medieval idea, the danger being put on the edge of the map and the unknown being put on the edge of the map. Kind of there be dragons. Exactly, it's that idea. And so, yeah, there is this very interesting tension between the world that should be known, but that there are still unknown parts of it, and then how do maps deal with that? So, for example, there is one part just before the dwarves and Bilbo come across the trolls in The Hobbit. They, the dwarves say something like, that these are kind of dangerous parts of the world and the maps have changed, the world has become more dangerous and the maps are of no use now, essentially. And so there is that idea of, yeah, the world changes and the world becomes more dangerous and parts of the world become completely taken over by new forces. And it's the same with Mordor as well. At one point, when Frodo and Sam arrive in Mordor, they look around and he says, well, I looked at maps in Mordor when I was in Rivendell, um, but that was before the enemy came. So now I don't know what it looks like. The landscape has changed. And so there is this very interesting tension between, like you say, the world that is known, but then also a world that isn't known, but the maps still exist. And then how do maps kind of keep cashing up? And how do they represent when the landscape still presents a kind of unknowable force? Yeah, and I think that goes to a lot of stuff that Tolkien says about ideas of like nature and landscape and you know the tension generally between men and technology and industry and all of that and then the agency and independence in a way I suppose of the natural world they can never completely be known or tamed it's also interesting to me uh, that throughout I mean Frodo's journey in particular he uh, has a guide in the form of Gollum yes Uh, so even then when he doesn't know where he's going yeah he has someone who does someone who's taking him through it yeah so the way that perspective and the maps work together is Mm. is quite interesting i think probably like the first or one of the first Tolkien scholars his name's tom shippy and he is kind of a very big deal um and he pretty much invented you know the realm of Tolkien criticism he writes once that the way that the characters talk is that they talk like maps and actually, if you read Lord of the Rings especially, you do kind of realise that, that Aragorn will climb to the top of the hill and he will just describe everything. And the narrative itself will be like, oh, then they turned southwest and then there was a river and then to the south of that there were mountains and then this was here and this was that. And it's very much mapped out, like you say. And so even when you don't have a physical map, there is this kind of constant sense of, if not mapping, then this kind of cognitive cartography that comes from it. 
which is, yeah, that is kind of this interesting, and I think Gollum has that as well, where he knows the world. But then, again, he doesn't also know parts of it, no character does, and I think that's where the tension lies, those parts between like the dangerous world, or the changed world, um, and then kind of the safety of the known world. So like, you know, these homely houses, Rivendell, the Shire, these places that kind of connote safety, um, but that at the same time, characters like Bilbo and Frodo have to eventually kind of grow out of and escape from. I imagine in particular a good example of this would be Moria. Yes. Where it is known, or it's thought to be known by the Fellowship. Yeah. Um, and Gimli in particular. Yes. But what they find when they go through is a very changed world. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that happens a lot. I mean, even if you think of um, like Smaug and the way that he overtakes the Lonely Mountain and completely changes it again. It seems to always happen to the dwarves. I don't know what happened, why it's always the dwarves. But it seems like these places, they build these safe cities. And I mean, Asgiliath is the same. Um, Minas Morgul used to belong to Gondor and was essentially the twin city of Minas Tirith. And then it's completely taken over by malignant forces. And I think there is something quite interesting to be said about that as well, because a lot of people think of um, the danger of the landscape as belonging to nature. And so if you think of kind of even just historically within literature, places like the forest are seen as like this very malignant place. But Tolkien does that with cities as well. So cities and kind of, in as much as you can say, an urban area, but um, these constructed places also become places which can change and which can be unknown and which can kind of, you know, subvert your expectations. And then, yeah, the interesting question is, well, what do maps then do with that? So. Smaug is on most of the maps, so he's like the wee dragon that's in the corner. And so maps have kind of caught up to that. But then, like you say, Moria is never is never put on the map as kind of this place that now belongs to, you know, the, the orcs or the Balrog or whatever. Yeah, and so I think there is always this kind of inadequacy that maps have throughout the text. They can never quite portray or represent what what is really out there. Um, but then the way that they try, the techniques they use is is really interesting. Yeah, no, and, and I mean, it's interesting as well that a lot of these places that you're describing are, that are changeable, mm. the most changeable areas are the liminal spaces, the underground, yeah. the forests, yeah. and those on the edge of, of Mordor, really, which yeah. itself is a liminal area with, I mean, surrounded by mountains and with Mount Doom standing in the middle. Yeah. So you have this idea that the the liminal areas are the most changeable and they are the places where the maps need to kind of do the most changing yes. and catch up more than kind of the more i i guess static yes uh, areas yeah for sure but i think kind of even towards the end of lord of the rings places like the shire that was supposed to be very safe and like you say very static they're also starting to become changed like saruman tries to take over it and so yeah, it is definitely the liminal spaces that start to go first, but then I think it shows that, that even the safe spaces aren't safe from this sort of thing. And like a part of the Shire, which is the map that's provided of the Shire, it does set the world out in a very kind of safe, demarcated space. And what it portrays is also effectively a domesticated landscape, and I think that's quite important as well. This is a place which has undergone like agriculture, farming, building, um, domestication essentially. And so the map does reflect that to a certain extent. It seems like a very safe space. But then what does happen when the evil forces come in? And it turns it again into this kind of liminal space. And I think that's generally the story of Middle-earth is this 
is this tension between the safe spaces and the dangerous spaces, but then also the idea that everywhere can be prey to that. And like the history of the love, like I said, if it's meant to kind of be what is now Europe or our world, then there is this kind of sense of loss that's happening just implicitly, because if that's what it used to look like, and now this is what we have, then somewhere along the way, all of this land, you know, changed, all of all of the species became extinct, like something happens. And I think whether the maps can show that or not, that's, yeah, another another thing I'm looking at. Well, I mean, a lot of it is the demystification of um, of things like around forests. That's where you find the elves. Yeah. And a lot of the the weird things that happen in forests can be explained by elven magic, and yes. in, in the Hobbit, and both at Mirkwood and uh, Lotharian. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess what we're dealing with is kind of the loss of that mystical element yeah. in this world. Yeah. Um, on top of that. Yeah. Lothlorien is actually a really interesting example, and I've just written about it, so it's like fresh in my mind. So the chapter I'm writing at the moment is generally to do with the way that maps can talk about time. So to what extent can they talk about a long temporal period when they themselves are static objects? And Lothlorien is a really interesting example of that because it is described as a very timeless place. So it's very preserved, and it is preserved essentially because of this elven magic. So it's the power of the three rings that are kind of keeping it as it is. So when Frodo first steps into it, he has this impression that he had stepped into a world that was no longer there, that it was a world of the past, essentially. And there are all of these um, references throughout Lothlorien to its weird kind of liminal timelessness. So Aragorn at one point sees his first meeting with Arwen, which happened in Lothlorien. And when Frodo's looking at him, he no longer sees him as who he is now. He sees him as a young man. So again, you have this kind of collapsing of timelines that happens in it. And so yeah, when you have a place like Lothlorien, where time has effectively stopped to a certain extent, and the elves have tried to preserve this corner of their world away from evil and away from even the ravages of time, like the natural destruction that happens, then how do maps kind of catch up to that? And in a way they can't and in a way then the map begins to reflect what Lothlorien itself is doing and that they're both kind of these static places that have been made quite artificial yeah Lothlorien is a really interesting example of that and then obviously when the three rings the power of the three rings fades at the very end then Lothlorien essentially succumbs to the passing of time and then again the map is not quite it's kind of intention with it yeah so that kind of the thing about like maps and time especially is kind of, I think, shows the inadequacy of cartography to a certain extent. Like, it can't tell the full story ever, much in the same way that it can't tell the full story of these dangerous landscapes. Like, I think always when Tolkien's, the way that he works with maps is to always show that, well, okay, they can maybe show you where you're going to a certain extent, but there's always these failings with them that they can never fully tell you everything about a place. Yeah, no, and that's actually a, a great point for us to switch to the second half of our podcast now. Oh God. Okay. <laughs> uh, we're, we're going to go back and take a look at the road that you took to this PhD. Oh, okay. <laughs> My own map. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, that's grand. <laughs> right, so you started off at Oxford doing yes. French and German. Yes. How did you end up in Edinburgh oh, uh, doing English? The course at Oxford is very literature heavy. And so I was always doing literature. So it was essentially 50% literature and then 50% language, which was straight up translation, often of literary texts. So the whole thing was very, you know, book heavy. And I started off doing languages actually being more interested in the language side of it. And then I just really liked, I didn't even like the books. Like I found a lot of it quite boring, like 
Stondale is just awful <laughs> and just nothing can save him. But writing about it, I always thought was really interesting. And um, yeah, that was always the part of it that I was most drawn to. But I did always find it very frustrating that I didn't love the texts themselves. I liked studying them and I liked learning about the kind of period they were written in and, you know, practicing close reading and all of that. That was all great. But yeah, I, I had always liked kind of more fancy things and more, yeah, things that weren't quite real. <laughs> and there wasn't a lot of that in French and German literature. German a little bit more, actually. We did um, a lot of stuff to do with like German romanticism and the fairy tales and things like that. And that was cool. That was my favorite part. And so, yeah, when it came to choosing my masters, I did comparative literature just because I didn't want to choose between the languages yet. And I wasn't really sure. At the time, kind of the idea of changing to English literature, I wasn't quite ready for that either. So I did comparative literature and I did it in St. Andrews. I don't know why. St. Andrews looked pretty. And that was where I started to be able to do kind of much more to, yeah, just expand the canon a little bit, I guess, because Oxford was very, it was very strict in what you studied. It was great. I loved it there and it gave me a really good foundation for everything. But you didn't have a lot of choice and everything was quite traditional. Whereas a lot of the stuff that we did um, in St. Andrews was things that were slightly outside of the canon. Um, you could also construct your own course to a certain extent. So I did do kind of like German romanticism and fantasy and stuff as much as I could. Yeah, and it was finally the place where I could do the things that I was slightly more interested in. And then when it came to thinking about doing a PhD, I had heard so many people say that, you know, especially by your third year, you just hate your PhD, you hate the topic, and you never want to look at it again. And I thought the only way to get through something that is a very difficult and very long process is to do it on something that you really, really love. And I just thought I would never get sick of reading about like Frodo and Aragorn in the secondary literature. That was probably, <laughs> which is actually now that I think about it, an academically very naive way to like pick your PhD topic. But I just really loved it. And so I ended up, yeah, just applying for that because I did have a literary background. I just didn't have a specifically English literary background. Then I didn't even apply to do maps. I applied to do storytelling originally. Um, so I was going to look at the way that stories were told um, in kind of within Tolkien's Legendarium and the way that um, he uses textual objects to tell stories. And then that, the maps was going to be like a tiny part of one chapter. And when it came to, you know, writing the plan for that part, it was just so big that me and my supervisor were like, oh, just, just write about this, the whole thing. So it's a bit of a weird part, but I do think it's important that people don't, because you're very young when you pick what you want to do for undergrad, you are, you know, still a baby. So being able to kind of switch and go after what you're really interested in, to use your undergrad to develop your interests and then kind of pursue that specific path, I think is quite, quite important. So where does this love for Tolkien and Lord of the Rings come from? Um, I don't, I just really liked it as a kid. Um, I remember my parents took me to see the films. My parents hated the films. <laughs> So it was like a very arduous task for them. I think I just really liked the world of it, I suppose, and the films I think do quite a good job of showing that. Then when I ended up reading, I didn't read the books immediately, I was 10 I think when the films came out, but then when I started reading the books as a teenager, I don't know, there was just something about it that appealed to me. So much of what we study is about this kind of very mundane sadness <laughs> in a way. And I just never really liked that. I could never kind of engage with it that much. There is a tragedy in in Tolkien's world, but there's something a little bit more beautiful and poetic about it, and there's something just a little bit more epic, I think. I think that's it. Like, it just always attracted me. It just seemed like a very kind of beautiful space. 
And yeah, but like as in fantasy stuff, I've always liked like Philip Pullman and like the Harry books, obviously, um, and all of that. Ursula Le Guin, she's great. So yeah, I've always, I don't, I can't really say why. I just really liked things about places that didn't really exist. And so, yeah, it made sense to kind of pursue that for something that was going to be like my pet project for four years. No, no, that's that's good. I mean, that's a really good answer. But it was the movies that got you into the talking yeah. universe yeah, yeah, rather than sure. anything else. Yeah, it was little when they came out. So I think they were the first thing I saw. I think I'd read The Hobbit maybe beforehand, actually. And I had liked it, but I don't think I'd really realised the significance of it. Kind of, you know, the significance of Tolkien generally within, you know, the fantasy world. To me, it was another book that I picked up at the library and I really, really liked but I didn't realise it was, like, you know, the book. It was The Hobbit. Oh, my God. But, yeah, it was the films, um, which... Because I didn't read the Lord of the Rings books until a few years later. Um, but it was because I loved the films so much, um, which my supervisor will be really mad about. She hates the films. <laughs> and there are a lot of Tolkien people, actually, that are really, really snitty about the films. But I like them. I think they're great. So when you imagine the characters that you're writing about, you do you imagine the, the actors? To a certain extent, yeah, I think the actors do a really good job, and to me they are, they embody the characters in a really good way. But there's just so much more to the books, I think, just purely in terms of volume. They are just, there's so much more interaction between the characters, there's so much more background to them and their history, that it kind of elevates them beyond the films to a certain extent. Um, I think the films are a really good doorway into that thing, and I think what the films do really well, actually, is getting across that sense of place that I think Tolkien found very important. And so I guess it depends what you want from them. Like my supervisor, like I said, she doesn't like them. But for her, she really likes the philosophy about the books. And I guess the films, yeah, they're probably not the best place to think about like grand ideas of, you know, death and passing and whatever. But I think they do a really good job, um, thanks to your native country, of getting across this kind of very grand sense of... Um, this place that all of the characters are very tied to. Like, you understand why the elves have so much trouble leaving Middle-earth, and you understand why men have such a fraught relationship with their mortality and with the idea of, again, leaving this place. But, yeah, I think it's always done a really good job of getting across that kind of very grand scale, but at the same time making it seem like a place where people belong and are attached to. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. The one kind of major shot that sticks with me from that film series is I believe the opening of The Two Towers where you yes. kind of swoop over yeah, yeah. The, yeah. the various places where incidents yeah. happen. You have the, um, not the voiceovers, but in the background, mm -hmm. the the action from the, yeah. the previous film yeah. just to kind of as a recap. But it's a, kind of an amazing recap of the world that I've traversed so far, I think. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. I love that shot. And I think what that shot does is it gives you a very large sense of scale. And I think, again, that's one of the things that I really love specifically about Tolkien is, like I was saying, with the maps, there's this idea that there's a world beyond the narrative. Um, so yeah, you do have that shot of the mountains and then you have Gandalf and the Balrog falling and they're just this tiny little kind of spark, essentially, within this enormous cavern. And I just think it does a really good job. And, gen it, and that is, I think, what Tolkien was trying to do. He was trying to get across this sense of a very real world and a very large world. Um, and I think they do that quite well. And also, like, with the lightings of the beacons, I think that's another kind of point where you really get a sense that everything, everything is very big, but also everything connects up, that there is this kind of sense of logic behind it all. 
Well, that's a, actually the, the lighting of the beacons. We're going to geek out here for just a second. Sorry uh, to all my listeners at home if they don't, if they don't like this. Um, the lighting of the beacons is another interesting one because it's actually kind of bringing out a space that's being compressed within the films. Yeah. Because we always hear that it's three days' ride from uh, Rohan to, um, to Gondor, to um, Minas Tirith. Yeah. And yet we see very little of that ride. Yeah. Gandalf just arrives yeah. in Minas Tirith. We see uh, Aragorn's uh, journey underneath the mountain. Yeah. But we don't actually get a sense of the distance or the scale yeah. until we see the lighting of the beacons. Yes, yeah, exactly. We're told about it, but we don't see it. Yeah. And I think what the films do is they kind of recreate what the maps do to a certain extent um, in the books. Even in the books, there is this kind of, you know, compressed, like, characters end up somewhere or whatever. Um, and, the, you know, the narrative has to move along, which is fair enough. Um, but the maps kind of take that and draw it out and show you exactly where. And I think especially with the Lord of the Rings maps and Tolkien's kind of obsessiveness about the scale and the accuracy of it, you do get this sense of exactly how far apart these places are and everything that happens in between them. And just, like, the variety of landscape that there is and everything that needs to be traversed. And there is this very interesting thing within the books, actually, is that they will often talk about um, space in terms of time. So they'll talk about somewhere as like three days ride or eight days walk or whatever away. Um, And so, yeah, you do have this sense that the landscape has to be experienced in a way, that you need to kind of move through it, through time and through space to kind of understand it. And I think, yeah, like you say, the beacons, that's another point where you get kind of all of it so I think this is probably going to be my, my final kind of line okay. of questioning before we go on to our usual final five questions. But I was just wondering, when did you realize that you were going to do a PhD? I always kind of knew I, was, I wanted to do one and I would like to do one. But at each step throughout my kind of academic career, I always did question it. So I took a year out between my master and my PhD because I wasn't entirely sure. And I wanted to make sure that it was something that I wanted to do because I liked it as opposed to I had nothing else to do. I know, I really like reading. <laughs> and it seemed like the place where you could just spend all of your time reading about the things that you like. And I also really like university environments. I really like learning. <laughs> and I like the kind of atmosphere that it generates of kind of people that are interested in education um, and educating themselves and educating other people. So it was something that I never really wanted to leave. All right, and why Edinburgh over anywhere else? That's yeah, a bit of a funny story. I just, there aren't that many Tolkien people um, in the UK. So there aren't that many places where you can, which I guess is the same with any specialism. But I think I applied about to five or six places maybe. And I actually almost ended up going to Durham. And then one day, about a month before term was meant to start, I just sat up and I was like, oh my God, I really want to go to Edinburgh. I don't know what it was, it was just a sudden realization. Um, it's a really beautiful city. I had known it a little bit when I was in St. Andrews. Um, and I'm also, so a lot of the other work, like work work I do, is to do with culture and travel and writing. And it just seemed a better centre to kind of develop that side of things as well. Yeah, and I'm really glad I came. My supervisor's amazing. And this department is, yeah, the people in there are great. So, yeah, I think it was a good choice. It's a, it's a gorgeous campus yeah. in a, a really, really beautiful city. Probably yeah. my favourite in the UK. So. Yeah, no, same. I, I really love it. And Scotland as well. Like, coming from England, um, Scotland is just better. <laughs> Everything, the politics of it is just a better place. So, yeah, I, I, I'm very happy here. 
Oh, good, good. And with that, I think it's time that we go into our final five questions. Okay. So these are the five questions that I ask to all my guests, uh-huh. just to kind of get a sense of your PhD experience so far, how that's gone. Are you, you ready? You also yeah. Have <laughs> sure. Question number one: What has been the biggest challenge of your PhD experience so far? I think maybe it's been getting into the whole English literature side of it. I didn't think it would make that much of a difference. And in a way it doesn't because kind of, you know, you have the close reading skills and you have all of that. But the people that I have, my friends over here who are also on the course, they just know stuff about the canon and about, you know, the history of English literature that I just don't know that well. That I know for French and German, you know, like you can kind of that random philosopher who said some random thing in the nineteenth century that you know was vaguely important for this writer. I don't know it in the same way. Um, and it's not really been kind of for my PhD because my PhD like is my own stuff and so I know that stuff now pretty well but it's just been something that I've been very aware of that I do want to catch up with and yeah I, I think any degree in a way it makes you very aware of all of the things that you don't know um, as opposed to all the things that you do know um, and that's good that makes you I think more curious and more excited to know the other things but it's also sometimes a little depressing when you forget the millionth time what so and so said. Now, question two. What advice would you give yourself if you could go back to your first day? Honestly, I would probably, if I could go back to my first day of applying, I would actually probably advise myself not to, and it's possibly like quite a controversial thing to say, not to solely write on a single male author. Is probably, if I could go back and change one thing, as much as I really, really love Tolkien, it's nothing against him. I would, because a lot of the stuff that we do in the department at the moment is stuff to do with um, diversifying the curriculum and thinking more critically about, you know, the very white, very male canon. Um, And it's something that I am really passionate about. And as I go into teaching next year, it's something that I definitely want to bring across to my students. And so I maybe would have been a little bit more wary of picking an author that does. And, you know, I, I I love Tolkien. I do. And so it's not kind of even a personal thing to him. But maybe I would have thought about expanding to someone like Ursula Le Guin as well, um, just to have that kind of balance there. Um, yeah, possibly that. That's a very kind of grand, like broad one, though. All right, question three. Mm-hmm. Ideal scenario, what do you want to get out of your PhD? Like, honestly, at this point, just the PhD <laughs> would be great. Um, yeah, I, I guess... Um, I never went into the PhD out of like pure career motivations because I think as everyone knows, getting a job in the humanities after a PhD these days is almost impossible. So I've always been very aware of that. I think what I'd like to get out of it is, yeah, I think like I was saying in a way, like the kind of challenging aspect of it is to overcome that to a certain extent. So to feel like I know English literature a little bit more and that it's something that I kind of have a much broader and more in-depth sense of. Um, and I think teaching as well is something that I would really like to... So we um, only get to teach a term in our first three years. So I'm teaching for the first time next next term. But if I could, kind of into my fourth year and beyond that, that is definitely something that I want to do more of. Um, I think that kind of practical element of it, because PhD can be quite, you know, a lot of sitting by yourself and writing by yourself and no one, or at least over here, no one is doing anything even remotely similar. 
And I have really great friends and they're really willing to talk to me about my work. And it's really interesting hearing about their work as well and the fact that it is different. But it is also a little bit, not lonely exactly, but like a little bit isolated in terms of the day-to-day stuff. And so I think for me, it's always been important to do all the extra, like, you know, seminars and like helping run conferences and um, like the teaching and stuff as well. So I think that for me almost is as much of a priority. And like when I come out of it, I want to look back and be like, yeah, I contributed to the community of like that, the academic community of the department and to the education of the undergrads and all of that. Again, a, a very good answer. Question number four is almost the reverse of that mm-hmm. is what impacts do you want your PhD to have? So the kind of world of Tolkien criticism is kind of expanding at the moment and I think generally fantasy. Um, so I don't know if you know, but Glasgow has the very first fantasy masters in the country, which is really great. Um, and Tolkien is being represented more and more in conferences and things like that. And so I think I'd like to tap into that sort of thing, but I think I'd like to do it, I'd like it to be as accessible as possible, I suppose, and for people to be able to think of it as a very literary endeavor that taps into other parts of um, what they're interested in within literature. So something that fits into kind of another PhD kind of thesis in a way, um, because I think a lot of what happens with Tolkien is that he's often relegated to, well, he's fantasy, or he's this, or he's that. And he's very genre-specific. And I think I'd quite like people to be able to read him and be able to consider like the work I've done within wider questions of you know place and landscape and kind of literary mapping, which is you know itself a thing. And so to be able to consider him not just as an author within this very specific genre, but as an author that was doing very important things that we consider within kind of all literary work of the period, if that makes sense. Yeah, so to kind of integrate him a bit more, I suppose, that would be nice. And question number five, the last question I have for you today. If you hadn't studied Tolkien, what do you think you'd be doing right now? As if I hadn't done a PhD or if I hadn't done a specific thing on Tolkien? You can still do a PhD if you want. Okay, it would be on Ashley Le Guin. Ashley Le Guin? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, because she is very, very cool. She is just, oh my gosh, she's the best. And she also um, has the same kind of maps and things like that, but it's very interesting when you look at her maps compared to his, because Tolkien's was very much based on like a European frame, whereas hers is a lot more, oh, I never know how to say this word, archipelago? Archipelago? Archipelago, <laughs> yeah, that. Um, and so, you know, it's all these tiny islands and it looks, I think it's meant to resemble the Philippines, I think. It takes what are a lot of the traditional tropes of fantasy literature, especially even by that time, it was only about you know, 10, 15 years after Tolkien had published Lord of the Rings, but already he'd kind of established these like stereotypes of fantasy literature in a way, and she took them and she completely reversed what was until then a very kind of male, very European, very Western approach to it, um, while still maintaining all of the stuff I like. So there's a very kind of high fantasy, world-building project um but then just you know not everyone is white which is great um and yeah that's not again not to kind of be like Tolkien was awful I think I think he was great and I think he did a lot of very interesting kind of political stuff within his work but I think looking at how that was then built upon especially by a female fantasy author that would be and that's probably kind of if I do you know have the energy to write anything after my PhD um, that's kind of what I would want to see as a postdoc, I think. Um, like looking at her stuff and the way that she deals with ideas of place and like the gendering of place, especially. Yeah. 
Okay, nice, nice. Well, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Of course. And that's all we have time for this week here at Nearly Experts. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of our progress and everything else online if you follow us on Facebook, just at Nearly Experts, or on, on Twitter, same thing. Yeah, that's it for me. It's bye from James. I hope you hear from me soon. Sorry, that was really long.